Welcome back to Ashburton. We're uh, about ready to start now. It's political commentary. And today on the line we are talking to Rod Oram. Morena, Rod, how are you? Marina, very, very well, thank you. Uh, we've got quite a, um, big topics to jump into today, so let's start with the uh, uh, anti-privatisation entrenchment clause uh, with the Green Party. They're sort of in the middle of... Um, uh, some confusion regarding this, and I'll just sort of run through what's happened because it is it is quite confusing. In order to entrench a clause in any piece of legislation, uh, in this case the anti-privatisation clause in Three Waters, you'd normally need a 75% majority to entrench it in the first place, uh, but the Greens knew that they wouldn't get that over the line with National and Act, so they went with 60% majority to entrench it. Uh, and now it seems that there's been a big miscommunication between the Green Party and the Labour Party as Labour's sort of walking it back and saying they thought it was 75%. What on earth's happened? It seems like there's a lot going on here. Um, essentially, the Greens um, <clears throat> have a, a very strong point to make, that these are valuable assets and they should be protected from being privatised. Um, but uh, entrenching it in... Um, legislation is a very major step to take. It's, that's reserved for, um, I would argue, uh, more important things. So that's why Labour was very resistant to it. But the reason that it actually got through on one vote um, on the 60% was because the um, uh, uh, government's um, parliamentary management was amiss. They, they just weren't keeping track of what was going on. So it's very embarrassing um, to Labour from that point of view that they, um, that the Greens were able to sneak this through. But that's why they're walking it back now. Mm. <clears throat> I think that um, entrenchment is the wrong way to um, um, put a big block against privatisation there. Um, <clears throat> but I think it would be a very important step to take uh, with these assets. And um, it, it's now up to the government to find a different way um, to solve that problem rather than entrenchment. Why would you say that entrenchment isn't the best way to uh, protect um, this legislation? Uh, because um, there has been backlash, particularly from um, some constitutional law experts, saying that it sets a, a dangerous precedent for other laws. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, that's exactly it. Um, because when something's entrenched um, with a very high bar of 75%, um, that makes things um, very difficult to change. Mm. Um, and I think that's a power that should be reserved for um, uh, very, very fundamental um, issues in law, and therefore um, a different way um, to protect these assets from privatisation. And there are many um, um, uh, that are actually in, in this, uh, uh, simpler to put in uh, would be far more preferable. So I'm, I'm with the constitutional lawyers on that one. Mm. And the leader of the House, Chris Hipkins, said that um, the entrenchment provision would be removed when the House resumed on Tuesday. It's now Thursday morning. Do you know what's happened since? No, I'm afraid I'm not following this at all closely. Um, not being a gallery chorus, co um, correspondent, I don't yes. live and die by the, <laughs> the, the, the um, hour by hour and day by day goings on in Wellington. So I'm sorry, I can't help you on that one. That's all right. But what, what safeguards would you advocate to put in place? Because as you've said, it is important to protect against uh, the privatisation of water. Is there something they can do besides entrenchment? Yes, um, they would look rather more like, um, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm using this word cautiously, um, commercial constraints. Um, and again, that would ri raise some people's alarm that, oh, you know, we're just dealing with these, you know, 
trading them, you know, selling them or not. It, it, you know, this is far more important. Water is far more important than commercial considerations. But there'd be ways to um, structure the entities um, that do give um, government, uh, the government of the day, um, roadblocks to prevent the government of the day um, just being able to... Um, in a speedy fashion, um, put put these assets on the market. Um, I, I'm sorry, I can't. I, I don't know enough about um, quite how to structure the law, um, but I, I, I know there's some mechanisms there. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that um, plays out. Mm. Well, let's move on to the Royal Commission uh, of Inquiry into the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, this has been announced that this inquiry will happen. I think it's. Uh, due to sort of be completed around 2024 and it has the aim of, of helping Aotearoa better prepare for future pandemics. Uh, what will be the focuses of this inquiry and is there anything that you think might be missing? Um, no. Um, I'm First of all, I'm really glad it's happening because um, COVID was a, an extraordinary period. <clears throat> we learnt a very great deal in that time very fast um, and we can be pretty sure there are going to be um, either um, more virulent forms of COVID coming, coming along or, or other um, pandemics. So it's really important that we learn in, in a very structured, um, thoughtful, objective way. And the very best way to do that is a Royal Commission. So some other countries are, are on the same journey. Um, so, for example, the UK, which had a far more torrid time than we did, mm. um, has one in place actually on a remarkably similar timetable. They started a little earlier in the middle of this year, um, but their endpoint is similar to us and a similar sort of structure. Um, so, uh, no, Royal Commission is absolutely the right way to do it. And um, I think the choice of commissioners is a good one, too, um, a good range of people there. And um, uh, I think it's going to be completely fascinating uh, what they come up with. Now, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds on this one. On, on one hand, um, it would be rushing it to get the, re the result out before the election. But if they did that, that would look like pretty political from the government, mm. i.e. they were trying to um, deflect criticism of themselves or bury it um, or put the best case forward about how wonderful they were prior to the election. So I think it's right that it should be um, uh, land after the election um, in, the term, in the next term of government, whoever has um, the government benches then. Um, but I hope that um, between now and the election, um, the hearings will um, stimulate, um, will, will surface a lot of interesting evidence and will surface a lot of discussion, which will help keep people achieve a more rational view of what actually happened through that time. I, I think um, we jumped in, um, by and large, as a population very supportive in the first year, <clears throat> but that began to fall apart very seriously in the second year, I mean, to the point that um, we've went down rabbit holes of disinformation and all, all the other um, social media problems there and the like, culminating in the occupation of uh, the parliamentary gardens early in the year, parliamentary grounds. And um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that just the fact it's sitting and having evidence that surfacing um, and reminding people about what went on, I'm hoping that that will have a positive effect on the debate, which we'll inevitably have as part of the election late next year.
And what what are the times that this inquiry would focus on? Because as we know, COVID is still with us. It's um, we're seeing a um, a wave at the moment. Is this just the first two years of the pandemic, or is there a specific um, time that we're looking at? Yes, there is, and um, I'm afraid I don't have the time frame right in front of me, but I do remember one important point about it. It starts in February of um, 2020 and there's a very good um, point being raised by some people that it should start earlier Mm. um, because there were obviously the early warning signs uh, going all the way back to the very end of 2019 Um, and so how the government was picking up that intelligence um, those early signs and thinking through things what was going on in early preparatory stage in say even just six weeks before the start date for the inquiry, which is February. I think that's an incredibly important point. Um, As memory serves, it goes until, um, no, I I won't quote the date, but it goes late late into this year, um, which is fine. Um, I think it's important to have a cutoff point to help the um, commission focus, but also a cutoff point that's not too close to when they start work so so the dust settles a bit to, to make it easier for them to investigate mm. so by and large the time frame is fine except i think it sounds as though there's a really good case um to pull it um back in time about another six weeks into 2019 so we can understand exactly what the government was seeing hearing picking up about what was going on in china and beginning to think about how to respond um, beginning in february it was clear that something major was coming down the road but that's just slightly too late I think. Well it'll be certainly interesting to see uh, the outcomes of that inquiry. Just before we let you go let's quickly touch on COP15 uh, with a biodiversity focus. What what are you hoping will come out of this conference? Oh my huge hope um, and I don't think it's going to happen <laughs> is there is a biodiversity equivalent of one and a half degrees which is 30 by 30. Okay. So by 2030 countries of the world commit um, to um, Uh, keeping um, 30% of sea and 30% of land protected um, to allow biodiversity to recover. We obviously are fine on the 30% of land because we have such a large dock estate. Uh, We shouldn't be complacent about that. Lots to do on the dock estate. Um, But we're utterly hopeless on sea. We've got hardly any marine areas protected. Um, And the very big one that um, we're still trying to sort out is the Kermadex, Um, which the government very early on had proposed as a marine sanctuary, but then um, Maori fishing um, interests say, well, no, that impinges on their fishing rights, Um, and we're still trying to work through that. Um, 30 by 30 is a fabulous goal. It's It's dead right. It's just like the one and a half degrees, because when you have that level of protection about that much of the planet, it gives us a lot more of a chance to try to rebuild diversity. It kind of grows out from that. And that's a very big hurdle. It's not in the past. Um, So um, this is a very difficult COP because um, China is the president. They didn't do a terrific job last year in Jiangming um, in China. and um, and because of COVID in China, COVID restrictions, um, it's been moved to Montreal. And um, I think it's going to be a very difficult COP in many respects. But it's really fascinating. There's far more um, focus on this biodiversity COP than any previous ones. Um, it's always been the sort of the junior partner. But now we're seeing um, biodiversity and climate so intricately um, 
connected. Um, they're, they're twin issues. We have to solve for both. That um, it's really f very exciting to see a lot of focus now on Montreal. So um, they started um, um, tonight, uh, um, Wednesday our um, Wednesday their time, mm -hmm. i.e. now in in due course in um, Montreal. So it's well worth watching for the next ten days. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Rod Oram. It's always great to have you on the show and get your thoughts on what's happening here and out in the world. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Zoe. Matua. Matua. You just heard a bit of political commentary.